This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. So, Chris, on sale now through January 14th, some great stuff happening at your local Zupan's Markets. You got boneless, skinless chicken breasts from Draper Valley Ranger. This is free-range, non-GMO, air-chilled chicken, $6.29 a pound. That's a dollar off. So that's good through January 14th. You're also going to save money on granola. You're going to save money on Greek yogurt, coastal cheddar, Alaskan halibut fillets, nutrition bars, and collagen. My wife is totally into this. In fact, assorted products right now, 20% off their vital proteins, collagen. Actually, I should point this out to my wife. You need to go there right now. Also, you're going to save money on winter salads in the deli or grapefruit out of Florida. These are all great prices through January 14th. And the best thing for you to do is sign up for the news feed at zoopans.com where you will receive exclusive deals recipes, product announcements, and many more. Oftentimes, you'll be able to go in and get something for free. Three locations, West Burnside, McAdam, Lake Oswego, and Weir Court. Zupans.com. All right, it's the first podcast of 2020. Wow. First podca- po- podcast period, period. Of, that anybody in the eh, world is doing? No. Of Right at the Fork, Portland's Food Scene Podcast. Uh, we specifically timed this one to release the, in the first week of, uh, of January 2020 because it's a two-parter. Right. And all, well, also because the guest is really special. Oh, if, sure. If you go back and look at our first episodes yeah. of... There have always been episodes that we have decided to put first because we're really excited. Not that everybody else isn't great. Sure. But if you do go back and do a search on the early January episodes. We try to, yeah, we try to start the year with a bang. Right, exactly. And so this is a bang um, with Dave Dahl, mm-hmm. of, uh, formerly of Dave's Killer Bread, and right. now he's into African art. And he's Dave Dahl, basically. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we've had a lot of successful people. We've had a lot of people trying to make it in the food world here. Well, you know, as far as Portland goes, and uh, someone who struck it in, oh. uh, in the Portland food he world. He struck it. He struck it. Yep. So uh, they sold uh, Dave's Killer Bread, I think, in 2015 for $275 million. Mm-hmm. And the killer... Part of that for me, no pun intended, and maybe pun intended, yep. I don't know. Sounds like I was. Is that he didn't really start with Dave's Killer Bread until, you know, the family had a bakery, and we'll learn about that, until 2005. Right. So in a 10-year period, which is pretty short, they went from sitting, you know, going out to farmer's markets and talking about this new cool bread mm-hmm. to selling it. And so, uh, and Dave went through a lot yeah. to get there. Throughout that, afterwards, and um, it, this is not your your usual success story. This is a this is a, a roller coaster. Yeah, and uh, what a really nice guy. And he said when I first spoke to him before he came on, uh, we can talk about anything. So I was um, like that. Pardon me. You always like that. Yeah, nothing's he, off the table. Right. Well, he did take one thing off the table, but we still went there. Sure. Um, I mean, and it was, it was an okay, it was a personal thing to take off the table. So, um, but Dave, great interview. We decided to do it in two parts, as Mm -hmm. you said. So this is going to be part one next week. We'll release part two because it is a two hour interview and we thought that was a little bit much for our usual fare. Sure. 
Um, but uh, really interesting gentleman um, talks very candidly about Portland and some of the problems we have here and mm-hmm. how he might suggest fixing them. Here's a guy who's been in, you know been addicted right. and stolen things and done a lot of things that are problems here. Yeah. So it was interesting to hear from him how he would handle that and also what he's done um, since right. they sold the company and what his thoughts are um, about post-food life. And also, the one thing he really didn't want to talk about was he didn't want us to ask him necessarily about restaurants because he's just a meat and potatoes guy. Yeah. And he wasn't going to get very complicated when it came to Portland restaurants. Sure. But, um, at any rate, uh, I think everybody will enjoy our two, year 2020 of Right at the Fork, and we are pleased to kick it off with Dave Dahl. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets, inspiring you with the best in food and wine. Local and family-owned Zupan's Markets provides one of the most unique grocery shopping experiences in the city, with three locations to serve you, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Visit Zupan's.com and sign up for the email list to receive exclusive deals and promotions. By Ringside Hospitality Group, owned by the Peterson family for nearly 75 years. Ringside Steakhouse has long been a Portland landmark, famous for its steaks, world-renowned onion rings, and unsurpassed service, and now with extended happy hours, where you can enjoy a wide array of dishes on the bar menu for half off. Visit ringsidesteakhouse.com and make a reservation today. And by Portland Food Adventures. Join right at the Four Coast, Chris Angeles for once-in-a-lifetime luxury food and wine vacations with his Portland chef and artisan friends in 2020. Lauded Spanish restaurant Urdaneta's Javier Quinteras takes you to a magical Spanish Basque country for 10 days in April. Or explore beautiful and rustic Western Sicily with Taste of Italy's Astri Enzyme in October. Contact Chris Angeles through PortlandFoodAdventures.com. I hear you're not doing too much of the podcast anymore. No, and that's because, uh, you know, you guys probably have ways of testing your how your audience where your audience is at we we did we're just part of a big network right and the network is all different is you know it's we have this many listeners for the network but you don't know who's listening and you can't you can't uh measure what's going on we can tell where they are but can you who measure, they are? Can you tell how many people are listening? Yeah, well, we, we couldn't do that. You can't tell how many people are no, listening. No, because it was the whole network. It, it was a very limited organization. And that's interesting. The challenge for us is they changed the. So this is six years. Yeah. So you can imagine you did you have done a, yours was or is a weekly podcast. Yeah, for about a year or so is what I did it almost every day, every right. week. Right. So it takes. It, it's not as easy as people think, and that's yeah. why so many drop off. Well, if I was going to do it, I have to do it with a lot of love like you do. Mm-hmm. And I, that opportunity wasn't really there. It was, you know, show up and do it, you know, rather than... Right, and you have to know their business aspects to it. You need to know who's listening, I do. why you're doing it, and you need to get sponsors to keep it going. Yeah. Unless you're, you know, I guess you could say they, you could do it, They had right? One, they had one sponsor that, well... The sponsors were sponsors for the network. Right. So, I mean, it, the whole thing was 
just not doable for me. I mean, very limited. They just threw it together, which is fine, you know, for people who have a reason, you know, maybe a business reason to be doing it. I did it because I believed in it. It was a good idea. But after a while, I mean, it's just too much um, being tied down. Yeah, no, it takes it takes a, a little bit of work, and you know we don't do ours are conversations. Yeah, so I'm not. That's all. Court, neither Court nor I are doing long, a lot of research and a right. lot of notes. We're not re, you know, our you know Jamie Mustard, Davey, Dave's friend too. So he used to have a radio show, and he had pages and pages that he would write so. beforehand. Yeah, which Dave are you talking about? Bentley. Oh, Bentley. We ben, could, we we call could do, him Bend Over Bentley. Yeah. Ben, <laughs> he'll be glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. We could do a whole podcast on talking about Bentley. Yeah. Right? yeah. Have you ever sat down and talked with him about his uh, his vacuum cleaner salesman days? Yeah, yeah. I want him to do a movie on that. I think it's it's a Coen Brothers movie waiting to happen. Yeah, he's a clever guy. Uh, he's a, by the way, we're talking about the gentleman who sells all the maps in town, yeah. David Bentley. He has Portland Interview Magazine, and yeah. he's got his hands in a lot of things. Yes, he does. In fact, uh, <laughs> Dave was the guy who pulled me out about, must have been close to three years ago now. I was um, deep into my African art and forgetting about Dave Dahl. That was my deal. Um, because of all the crap I'd been through, I just didn't want to think about Dave's Killer Bread, the business, Dave Dahl. And it worked, you know, getting into the African art, but I completely got away from life, from the outside world. And then Bentley shows up and he goes, come on, man, let's do this. And next thing you know, I'm out in the world. And he does an article about me. And uh, then we he, he's introducing me to people. Yeah, no, and, he... He knows a lot of people. As yeah. a matter of fact, I think we're in the studio here indirectly because... Probably, huh? Well, he introduced me to Jamie, who had me on the show, who Court was his... Producer and producer, sound engineer. Sound yep. engineer, and we came in here, and when we started the podcast, they knew Court. So right. a lot comes from uh, David Bentley, but I was so amused. When we got to know each other, which, by the way, you'll get a kick out of this, um, I had just had a diagnosis of an eye problem that was... Kind of, it, it really bummed me out. I was, you know, in my 40s and I had some problem. I went to the sushi place over on, in Northwest 21st and I'm sitting there and I just didn't want to talk to anybody, right? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be alone in yeah. my own shit. Yeah. And in walks this guy who sits down next to me and I was thinking, God, I hope he doesn't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the last guy in Portland you want to think yeah, that about. Because he, <laughs> once he starts, it's hard to stop him. And you don't really want him to stop if you got time. Because he's got a lot of good insights and stuff. He's he's a cool dude. Yeah, he's 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 great. But not to go not to go on about a person that most well actually I would imagine quite a few people listening yeah. to this are going to know who <laughs> who David Bentley is. But we're here to talk about you. And one of the challenges is you you know you got a lot of interviews. Yeah, you got a Dave Dahl three sixty man, and it's <laughs> like that the interview that one would that we generally do here. And that guy Raz does um, has been done a million times. I so, spent about four hours with him. Guy Raz. Yeah, not with him in the studio. We were in two different studios, but that, that interview took a long time. Really? So yeah. he edited. Yeah, I can. He edited it down I to an hear, hour. I could. Well, of course, but yeah. I. He always does that. But yeah. I didn't know he. He had four hours worth of. He's got a staff, right? Yeah, but it was just me and him for all that time. He told you called me up before. And then he 
asked me, he texted me, text me after, you know, asking about the family relationship that we, that he talked about. Uh, it was, it was a really big concern of his because it was a family business. And he was like, so how, how did that go over since, you know, you guys don't get along? And at the time we didn't, at the time of the Guy Raz interview, we didn't get along. My brother, my nephew, my partners and Dave's Killer Brett. But, um, I think maybe even that interview had something to do with us, with me deciding to kind of say, hey, brother, you know, give him a big hug and say, let's, let's reset. That's good to hear. You know, I, um, <clears throat> in listening to some of your interviews and reading them, um, there, you and I have some parallels and yeah. we have some big differences. I'm and sure. we're not here to talk about mine, but I haven't spoken to my brother in five years. Yeah. And, you know, it's a frustrating thing, and uh, it's a tough one to overcome. So I'm glad to hear that you have overcome. It can be done. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. can be done. It's about making that choice. And, you know, in, this, in my case, it was like, well, there's maybe it will never be in that situation again that caused that problem. Um, those are all problems that normal families wouldn't probably get into. Uh, if they didn't weren't in the family business, so it was the business separate from the family, you know. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna leave that behind. Let's be family. And so, did you hang out on Thanksgiving? Yeah, I, mean, yeah. Uh, I went to my nephew's house on Thanksgiving. Right, but I mean, you you're in that position where you'll you'll hang out yeah. here and there. Yeah, oh, yeah, and it's it's it enriches my life to have those guys in my life. Get, you know, and you just gotta, neither one of us are going to go back there. Well, and also he's one guy. I'm and I'm throwing this out there that you can trust, loves you for who you are. He's known you for a long yeah. time. That's one of the challenges of you know making a big hit in life. Mm. And now all of a sudden you don't know who who your friends are who are hanging around with you. You yeah. don't know why they're there, or you yeah. you may know why. You may wonder. Have an Sometimes idea. I wonder. Yeah, yeah. You wonder why they're there. Yeah. Has that been a challenge for you? Since? Um, I don't. Know. I. I, I would say I've had a couple of issues. I mean, having money um, is a, is not something I, you know, I grew up thinking about. I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't even something I ever planned on having was a lot of money. Um, and, and making the bread, even making the bread, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get rich doing this. I was loving it. You know, that's what I love, doing what I was doing. Um, so when I, when I had money, all of a sudden, um, yeah, friends that I thought were friends may have burnt me here and there. Um, it was interesting to see how dynamics ch uh, change in relationships. <laughs> and how long did it take you to discover that? Because um, uh, I, I was reading about you're getting burned a little bit at Dave's Killer Bread with uh, a former, with an employee from a competitor, so oh to speak. Oh, my God, yeah. So you I'm have more than happy to talk about that. Um because that was dirty, but it was kind of what you would expect. Uh, it, it's, well, it, was it was so obvious. The, it was about the money. So. Yeah, and it was so obvious that you, you said, no, it isn't happening. There's no way it's happening. So let's go back to that because mm -hmm. I don't want to go all over the place. But mm -hmm. with friends, um, did you have something in particular where you said, holy shit, this is all different now? I don't know. You know, there are well, people who want to hang around with people with money. I look back, yes, I look back now, and I met somebody uh, 
who happened to be a financial advisor. I, I met this person um, several years before I was wealthy, but I, you know, I was I had a good job making Dave's Killer Bread, essentially, you know. I had, I was able to share profits at the end of the year, which wasn't a lot, but it was like I was able to buy a house so I didn't have to try to rent from somebody being a felon. Um, you know, I have my own issues. So I, um, long story short, I met this guy and he was a financial advisor, but we hung out for years. And then I'm like, I can trust this guy with my money. <laughs> you know, he's my buddy. He's the only, um, and you know, he took advantage of me. So, uh, and that, that kind of happens to anybody. Yeah. Um, but when it gets exacerbated. It was a big deal. Money. Yeah. But so for you to go, um, from prison, a lot, many times. I mean, you read it and you think, man, I, so one of the things that you and I have in common is I read where you couldn't get out of, you know, bed or out of a chair mm -hmm. in your depression. Well, that's a lot different from a prison cell than it is from, you know, a house that you own with a mortgage. Yeah. And so I thought, wow, from a relative perspective, you had a, you had a longer way to go. So when you got out and you went back into the bread business, just to own a home yeah. was a gigantic leap. So I'm guessing it was never on your mind when you started to think positively. Yeah. And I don't mean to put all the thoughts, but no, we don't have six hours to do anything, this interview. Anything you are. <laughs> right. So when you started to think positively, it was not. How am I going to take my father's bakery and turn it? build a new brand within it and yeah. become ridiculously wealthy far beyond the dreams of all these people in the Portland food world who yeah. are trying to just <laughs> make it right. You know, there are very few of you who have really hit. Yeah. It's, so, it's fun to watch. I, I love to see people succeed. Um, but you know, for me in those early days, like when I was in prison, there's, I was depressed because I had, you know, I had a good reason to be in a sense, but I was overly, it was my mind that was tricking me into, um, into the level of depression that I was in. And I was suicidal and all that. And, you know, that eventually led, led me to getting some help. And in prison, you don't generally ask for help because it shows weakness. And, you know, that's what, that's what I thought. But I was that's the mob, that's the mob mentality, right? Yeah. I can't that that's in the Sopranos. That's yes. really what happened there. I've actually, yeah. And finally, I said to myself, "Wait a minute, what do I care about what anybody thinks of me?" You know, and it got I got to that point at thirty eight, thirty eight years old, two thousand one in prison. Asked for help. Uh, put a kite in. Uh, I make communication form. Um, asking for you know if there was some sort of medication I could get. And I did. And the medication made a big difference. Um, Mine may be worse, by the way. Yours is worse? I took antidepressants and just went... Or didn't, didn't work for you? Went the, it went the opposite direction. Yeah. You know, the, the, the uh, disclaimers funny make how you that suicidal. Yeah. yeah, it's real funny. Well, so I couldn't see a, a, uh, an ad for Celexa for years without just... Make you sick. Yeah, yeah it make me sick. Well, I've heard that from a lot of people, and it's weird. I think it, it also makes a difference where you are in your life, um, what kind of, but everybody's different. Everybody's got different brain chemistry and such, but some of it's psychological too. And 
I don't know if it will work for me in my teen, teen years. I probably would have been, this doesn't feel good. But it felt right to me when I was 38. And I, I don't know, some of it had to do with just asking for help, really. And then going to school. I went to school for computer drafting in there, which just opened my eyes to the possibilities. Um, I was designing things on, on a, on, in 3D, 3D space. And I'm just like, this is really cool. And I, I especially thought, for a guy who's sitting in four yeah. walls every night with every day with nothing stimulating yeah. whatsoever. What was the? Was there anything before that in prison that would? I mean, well, you had access to books. I yeah, I had imagine. a guitar, um, but I had a guitar and I had books. Uh, and then there was, you know, sports on TV, like on Sundays, watch or watch a movie once in a while. Um, you know. I figured out eventually that I could, it doesn't really matter where I'm at if my mind is right. You know, it matters. But it, I can be okay anywhere. That, that's what I finally learned after 15 years in prison. Um, I also found that I didn't need people to make me happy. And I, be, I became independent of others. And, uh, you know, the problem with that is maybe you're a little bit, insensitive to to your family and all that kind of stuff you're insensitive to that a lot of people are more you know lovey-dovey and i'm not really that guy i i have to work at it and also if i from what i have read you didn't have anyone to go to to say can i get help as a kid because everybody you were being pushed kind of pushed yeah and and you didn't feel comfortable i had a religious upbringing and that was really, it was really either God has the answer or you're a sinner, you know. And when I went to church elders and stuff, because I had a very, you know, I went to church, religious schools and and church. Um, so I was just completely, like, indoctrinated until I was maybe 12 years old, and I said, you know, screw you. But Do you uh, remember what that was that made you say that? Um... I think part of it was just getting getting to the age where I questions just started coming into my mind that weren't answerable by by them, and, and I'm like, well, haven't you ever, haven't you guys ever asked yourself this question? And no, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, it's convenient not to ask the question. Yeah. Inconvenient so, truth. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So so you know what that led me to doing is is you know i had because of that background and because that's all i did i didn't have anything to uh i didn't have anywhere to go when i was running away from there it's like where am i going now and heading out into the world with all the the you know craziness that's in the world i wasn't ready for that so i just uh went off started I fell into criminality. It was like my first, my first uh, identity. Do you remember the first time you went off? What your, how you planned it, and uh, what your first thoughts when you were like leaving the neighborhood, leaving the city? Uh, well, I, I remember something. I mean, a lot of things happened before this, but when I was seventeen, I quit school. Um, it was the first couple of days of my senior year, and it was. You know, the weather was still good enough. I 
I took off across the country and um, I was just like, you know, I don't belong anywhere because I had left the church religious schools and I had gotten a, into a, um, public high school and <laughs> that didn't work either, you know what I mean? So nothing was working. I was complete, like, completely like an outsider and I, I'm like, who am I? What? What is what's going on? I where I come from, I, I can't go there. Where I'm trying to go, I can't go there. I don't belong. And no friends in high school? Not really. It was all it was all the other guys who were totally, you know, lost. We kind of got lost together. Mm-hmm. Got we drank together. We smoked weed, did acid, and that didn't help. No, just, no, but at least it gave you some camaraderie. Yeah, correct. You mm-hmm. had something. Some yes, that was what we had. We kind of like, uh, you know, hey, we're, we're in a way we're special, you know, but I never felt good. I never, I always felt, I felt um, uncomfortable in my own skin for a lot of years. Uh, but methamphetamine was the first thing that made me feel comfortable. And that's, uh, talk about, uh, something that you wouldn't want to make you feel comfortable. That, yeah. that, that didn't help. You're thinking, it helped short term. Well, that's the opposite of, of what you're thinking is supposed to make your life good, right? Right. Uh, but no, it was my, I consider it my first transformation in life. It made, made me realize, wow, you know, it was way later that I realized, well, you know, that was like a change in my mind. And so I realized way later at the age of 38 that I could take power um, over my own mind and my own uh, direction in life and where i'm going but at the time it was drugs that made it like a shortcut to that right but how long does that panacea last um as long as you know what almost as long as you get high as long as you have dope you know you have the dope and see it's not like some other drugs but it's, it's speed so um for me, speed agreed agreed with me. It doesn't agree with everybody like that, but it it actually just got rid of my worries and my self doubts and all that stuff. And so it would last, and then I would take a nap, a long take a sleep for a day or two, get up and do it again. You know, so it worked pretty good until I would go to prison for some stupid thing I did. Right, and the. Um but you're not accomplishing anything. You're no. just, you're just getting all your only accomplishment at that moment is okay. I'm not uncomfortable every minute of my life. Right. So that's, and but that's you, a, that's somewhere you want to get when you're uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and I was a fairly ambitious, uh, criminal. I mean, I, I, I wasn't about hurting people necessarily. I didn't really, I, I, I was antisocial and sort of like super, um, like, uh, yeah, I don't know, just, I, I wasn't thinking good things, but I, uh, I remember, you know, getting high, and um, when my, I always tried to be a drug dealer, but it wasn't until I went to prison two or three times that I became a good one, and then I wasn't good enough to stay out of prison. Right. You have to be a really good one yeah. to, uh, to avoid it the long, in the long term. There's so much activity. Um, I was so prolific, you know, all, all over the place, uh, that, you know, even though I always took measures not to get in trouble, it didn't work. You know, there's just too many opportunities. 
for the cops to get me. Well, yeah, and when you're when you're selling drugs, a lot of people know you're selling drugs. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to, you know, you have to be a big cartel to be so insulated. Yeah. And Not that me. I know a lot about this, but I'm just assuming I've watched <laughs> enough sense. movies and um, and that would be the case. A cartel or just somebody who's uh, able to set up, um, you know, barriers to right. bust. And you have to get really big. Yeah. And somebody's always likely to tell on you when they get in trouble, so. Right, I think you were a lot better off making it in the bread business yeah. than the drug business. Me too. Hey, Chris, let's uh, pause here for a moment to talk about uh, Ringside Steakhouse. It's always a good pause when we're talking about Ringside. And you know, they have, it's a very exciting over there because they have new happy hours going on, uh, available only in the bar Monday through Saturday, 9.30 to close, and Sunday, of course, 4 to 5 p.m. and then also 9.30 to close. It's one of the best happy hours in, in town for sure. So if you like their onion soup, and many of us do, that's now on the happy hour menu. It wasn't before. Oh, very nice. So so for those in the know, Ringside, I mean, it's a beautiful restaurant. And in the bar, you can pick from all sorts of great items from anywhere from $1.25 up to $6.75 each. That onion soup is $6.75. Uh, at happy hour, also a prime rib dip sandwich. Their beef meatballs. Uh, for less than that, you can get their steak bites, which we all know are great. Mm-hmm. You've had those, haven't you? I've, I've, I've had those many times, and it's yes. uh, something to always go back to. Yes, absolutely. It's it's great. I think Ringside is one of the classic Portland restaurants, and uh, for anybody that hasn't been there in a while, they need a refresher about how great it is. Yeah, my wife actually, she came down into downtown Portland for a comedy show, and she's like, you know, we want to go get some bites to eat, and I'm like, uh, duh, Ringside. And she went in and had just an enjoyable hour before she went over to the comedy club. Good thing to do. And, uh, yeah, it's a great time. And then uh, go do what you need to do afterwards. Got the the valet parking there, which is always so convenient. Yeah, it's nice to have. I mentioned it before. You can get the uh, gift cards at their website. And that's also where you can go to book your reservations, ringsidesteakhouse.com. So, you know, it makes me think that you're doing, and you're doing a lot of things now, you hired convicts or you hired ex-prisoners um, in your business, which you figured if it worked for you, it would work for others. Exactly. And uh, I believe the numbers, you had 30% of your employees were... I think in- it might still be that way, but we didn't We didn't set out to go, oh, we're going to hire 30% uh, ex-felons. We, the, it was early, early on, you know, like when I had... 20 employees with Dave's Killer Brad that I'm thinking, and, and all of a sudden we're growing by leaps and bounds because too fast, actually, um, to where we're hiring a lot of people. And we put out feelers at you know, essentially some uh, temporary companies, temporary uh, hiring companies. And um, it was funny, all, we had like 50 or 70 employees, and I asked them, you know, how come we're getting so many ex-cons over here? And they go, well, we found out that you guys will, are willing to hire ex-cons, so that we just started sending you all of our ex-cons. Well, the thing was... <laughs> <laughs> now we know where they should go. Yeah, and the thing was, 
it's a double-edged sword. You, if you just hire all the ex-cons that come on, you're going to get some bad ones. Right. Uh, and when you're hiring fast, you make mistakes. But the goal was always to get people who, what you are is a tool for them to become a little, come better. And they end up becoming your, some of your best employees. And other people won't hire them, you know? Other, uh, here's this great employee that is all this potential, and you won't hire them because they're a felon. We would, and we were able to succeed greatly because of that. Were you um, an advocate for that with other business owners? Were you? I just would tell my story. I was asked, uh, most of this stuff is buried, but on the internet, back in the day, there used to be, um, I used to go speak to everyone from at-risk youth to uh, to senators. I spoke on, uh, gave the invocation on the Oregon Senate floor. Uh, that was like the epitome honor, you know? But uh, I was always talking about it, those the story and all the aspects of things that I'd learned. And one of those was to talk about how great my employees were and why. And so I think there was definitely influence there. You know, we were we were getting the word out, and then you um, went on. We were just we started talking about this thing, in a in a bigger fashion. Let people know of some real success stories of people of felons who had turned around and started businesses like you did. Yeah, well, you didn't start a business; you just turned a, a yeah. business into a great business, right? Um, but and uh, my and, and I want to point out real quick. Hold on to that thought, but the intention. Um, you know, my intention wasn't to get out and start a business. My intention was to be an amazing employee and rise up really far, really fast and really well. Um, cause I believed in my passion and my, my ability to learn quick. Did that have something to do with your brother too? Well, that was the reason I went out and started working with, working with a family and created Dave's Killer Bread and had that opportunity was because of my brother. My brother though, uh, he wouldn't have had anything to do with it if I had gone another direction, which I intended fully to do until um, I, I realized, I think I was, I had a, had a dream about it or something that said, hey, uh, these things that you're learning in computer-aided drafting can be applied to designing anything, including bread or whatever. And my intention was to get out, uh, you know, work with my brother. I was going to, you know, I made 12 bucks an hour when I got out. Um, and I was happy, you know, so I, I ran, my idea was to run around to these different places like Seattle, San Francisco and such, and see what kind of cool things they were making, the bakeries were making that were local and successful because being baked, baked goods, a lot of times, you know, they're, they're local or regional, uh, rather than national. So... I was going to find out what was selling out there and come back and make something similar because I was quite capable of, uh, of reverse engineering and all that. I had, I had a lot of tools at my exposure that, you know, or, and, and CAD helped that too. CAD, CAD is, is design. You know, you're, you start with, um, a template of some sort and just like you do with a recipe and you uh, make it better 
or you take something away, you add something, you have to figure out all the solutions for each ingredient because each ingredient changes things drastically in bread, for instance. Uh, each ingredient can be just a huge factor. So um, it's the same with drafting. So you would you got a basic design, you got something that already exists, and there's a you see an opportunity if you can make something that is better this way it does has these features or these benefits and i did it over and over again in cad so i realized i could do it with bread and that was what, when i started having a conversation with my brother I, he was like you know a little bit wary because i screwed up so many times but i came back with a totally different attitude this time and um what did you see that was, I mean, I guess it's obvious because we know what the final product was, but what did you see? Do you, do you remember when you saw some things in bakeries in Seattle yeah. and maybe Portland and San Francisco? Well, I never you really thought, hey, I ne there's a seed. I never really made it to that. That idea was, was, you know, replicating other ideas, but I didn't really get around to that because my brother first put me on this project of redesigning the cookie line that we made for Trader Joe's. It was a pretty small, small part of the business. Um, and it was all private label for Trader Joe's. And so that was a good test of my abilities right off the bat. It took, it was really easy for me. And I, then I wanted to keep going cookies. I was like, man, I'm going to make a ton of different kinds of cookies. And my brother goes, Hey, wait, slow down there, champ. We got to, you know, it's, this is what we do. We make bread. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh well, man. Yeah, but the obvious response is, well, you're the one who put me on the cookie. Yeah, project. yeah, yeah. Well, that's what it was. But, <laughs> it, but he, he was, he was like warming me up, you know. Right. And once he saw what I could do, you know, uh, saw how my work ethic, my, um, my creativity and such, he was, he, he was hopeful that I could do something in the bread. And for me, it was like, oh my God, now we're talking the Goliaths. I'm David, and we got friends. We got, or we, all these, you know, Rudy's at the time, you know, all were successful bakeries. And like, who needs another bread product, right? That was kind of my thought, you know. But the challenge was, I took the challenge, you know, with an open heart, you might say, and said, well, I'll make a product that will keep, will sustain this bakery. You know, that was my idea. It's just like, what is it? And we can do, my brother and I discussed this. My brother had created a bakery that could not necessarily compete with the bigger bakeries, but would make a product that was different enough and, and hard enough to tool for, for instance, that you could make a living with it, you know. But once, Have your own niche. Yeah. But once the uh, big guys notice and you start taking their shelf space, that's a whole different matter. Now you're competing with them. So that's what Dave's Killer Bread did. Um, I make this niche product that I thought, you know, it's great stuff, but, you know, how do I know it's going to be so popular? Go to the farmer's market. That, I was, that's an, an amazing opportunity I had. And I have to tell you, and finding out that your first visit to the farmer's market was as recently as 2005, right? Yeah. 
that that's was the not first long ago. Yeah, that is not long ago to go from there to you know where you are now, mm-hmm. having nothing to do with bread and you know Af- loving African art. <laughs> if you would have told you then this is going to get you there and. You know, you're going to live near, right near there, right. too. I look down on it now yeah. from my penthouse. It's, um, you know, it's not something I even dreamed about. I, I dreamt that I was going to do great stuff, but I, I didn't think great stuff meant, you know, that kind of great. I just thought, well, hey, I'm, I'm going to enjoy what I do. It would have been, I think, virtually impossible for you to see no. where that was going to go. Right. I don't think anybody could see that. No. And... Uh, it, it must have been kind of freaky for you. To- it was it was it was very pleasurable because you know the first few years of Days Killer Bread, like five, seven, eight years before I you know started drinking more and more because I was success. You know the success led to celebrating, and it also gave me more time to get in trouble. You know instead of working my ass off like I was, there's more time now. But in those early years, it was all Dave's Killer Bread, and Dave's Killer Bread was a beautiful thing because. People loved my story, and they really felt like I could make a difference, and I believed it. And uh, so, you know, I put my story on the back of the bag. It's not there anymore. But I wrote a version of my story, very, you know, short, but short and sweet. And the end of it just says, you know, I'm just an honest ex-con trying to make the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. And... um they that went really well and people loved it they loved and they loved meeting me at the farmer's market they would come up there and it was august 2005 when we started um and, and you're the perfect kind of portland at least, you know you had long weird, hair at the yeah. time had, different yeah yeah so so it was you're the perfect person to represent some something as basic and sustainable as as bread i mean yeah they they looked at me as they they were all interested in me and my story uh along with the bread but the bread doesn't happen without that story happening first and the story doesn't nobody gives a fuck about that story until they say until the bread's added to it you know um so so to answer the question could that bread have done as well by from Bill Smith, who didn't have that story? Yeah. You, you don't think so? I do. I just think that, uh, I think you have to, you, you create a story somehow, some way. Um, you do, everyone's got a story. You know, it's about, my story just was full of, you know, ups and downs that were pretty extreme and such and, you know, transformation and people love transformation. But I think the product was good enough if somebody had had all of their ducks in a row, which is difficult. You know, who who else is going to have that opportunity where there was a little bit of infrastructure to work with? Right. You started with that. Yeah. It was a a very limited infrastructure, but there was infrastructure. And it was mainly just Portland area. I was able to once um, I went to the farmers market, and again I was. It was like the perfect. The stars were aligned because back then, two thousand five, they had a festival. I guess you would call it uh, a special farmers market that was called the Summer Loaf. You remember that? No, I just arrived here in two thousand five. That's oh. why the timeline was interesting. To yeah. Me because- well, but it was it was called the Summer Loaf, and it was an artisan bread festival. So 
everybody in Portland, around Portland, that, that had that thought they made some good artisan bread, brought it in and gave it a try. Well, mine was really the only sliced bread that, that was brought in, but it was still artisan. It was really coming from um, from me and from my heart and uh, my hard work, and took it to that. It was we were a big hit, and normally to get in the farmers market, um, you got to be you got to be a farmer, or uh, you know that helps. And if you're not a farmer, then you got to really wait for a long time for your opportunity to get in. Well, we were so successful at that summer loaf that they were asking us, "We want you in here." And that's Portland Farmers Market downtown in the Park Blocks. Pretty big deal to be able to do that. Well. If I hadn't had those four varieties of bread ready to go right then, which is, you know, just how it happened like that, um, where would I have gotten my start? You know, the farmer's market was amazing for getting people to try the bread. And it is the, it's, the, uh, it's the launching pad for so many of the people that we've had on the show. Like, I mean, uh, like uh, the ice cream lady. Uh, Ruby Jewel? Yeah, yeah. yeah they used to be right right next to us almost lisa yeah and her she's mom. done very well and her mom was there in those mm-hmm. days and it was uh yeah i was i was surprised to hear how well they've done but you know they were diff- they they found their niche and did a really great job so um that's like the shark tank of portland really uh, to, in a way if you get through there yeah. you're at least on your way I for mean, food yeah i think yeah. uh yeah if you're a food person and uh, you have the ability to uh, survive that those early early days because those are tough days, you know, for a lot of people. And the fruit and the farmers, yeah, they're not easy. No, they're not easy. Hard work, first of all. Right. If you're not a hard worker, forget it. And by the way, did you do you did at that time? I think things might be a little different for you now. Did you love people? Did you? Wanna, oh yeah. Did, so you wanted to talk? I changed to, a lot. See, I'd been I transformed. Um, I don't. I didn't want to hang out. I didn't want to like be around people forever. I just loved the interaction, uh, the conversations I had. Just like this, I'd be there. I'd hand a person a loaf of bread. I mean, they. I had samples of everything, and everybody would come by and try a sample and decide what they want. It was crazy how much, you know, the first time I went, the first farmer's market, my nephew and I did, and somebody, some lady comes up. I'll never forget this older lady coming up and trying a few samples and then walking away, and I'm like, oh, well, she didn't like it that much. She comes back a little bit later and has all these people with her. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that was happening. And I got to, and I loved these people because I don't know, they loved me, you know, and it was a love fest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I started getting, right there at the farmer's market, people were coming up to me, like, you know, news people and stuff. Hey, I, this is a story, you know, you want to, you want to, want us to do a story about it? It was so, so perfect to have that where we didn't have to go out and, try to find ways to advertise it, it, it came to us. You were a natural PR opportunity, and yeah. before social media, too. I can't imagine what would have happened if you had that going for you. Well, check this out. Social media did come along. Now, in those early, early days, like 2005, 2006, I had MySpace, and I'm like, you know, that was it. And I had, a, we had, a, a, my, bro- my nephew built a, a website. 
Plus, you were into music, so MySpace worked for you, too, yeah. right? That was, uh, yeah, but I didn't use nice it that musical way. Bent. I didn't use it that way. I mean, yeah, I did a little bit of music on there. You're right. But it was mainly just a way to connect in a bigger way because I was connecting so well on in the market. I was like, um, I it was already by 2006 too big for me to even uh, you know, know everybody and talk to everybody. I used to have my phone number and, and email on the label, you know, because oh, I, I wanted feedback, you know. Right. I, I wanted every bit of feedback I could get uh, about my product. And eventually, obviously, that didn't work out to keep doing that. Um, but, you know, when, when Facebook came along, I was right on it. You know, as soon as I understood it, I was like, this is great because... It's the same, almost the same, not quite as personal, but close to as personal as, and I was able to um, scale myself. And it gave you a place to send people. So you see them at the market, you were telling people to ask for it at their store. You weren't, you didn't have the distribution you have now or that, that, that That eventually occurred. Um, But so you needed a place to, um, better than your email, your email and your phone on the package. Yes. Facebook is a good way to communicate with uh, And they were seeing everything I was doing that I wanted to share, and pretty much everything I did I wanted to share because I was doing good things. And, uh, you know, when they started asking me to speak to all these different groups, I started doing, taking pictures and stuff like that, putting it on a website, on uh, Facebook. So Facebook, my Facebook was um, where people saw what I was up to and they loved it, you know, and then they would see it and they'd invite me to do it somewhere else. Um, but we never, I, I was like, as long as the product is there, I'll go there, you know, for free show up and it's worth doing it at that point. You know, you, um, people, judges and all these people would ask me to come to their state. And I said, well, as soon as the product is available there, then I'll come there because I have to do this as promotion. Right. Wow, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So we're, uh, and this is the probably the first time you were visiting places where you weren't running, right? <laughs> you were you were running, but you were running for a different reason. You were, I was running hard, right. uh, loving what every minute of it. You know, I, I meant running to something instead yeah. of away from something. I, yeah, I, I was working in those. I, I used to hustle pretty hard when I was a, when I was a doper. Um, so I think that's something that's natural with me. You know, my dad was a hardworking guy. He was a, a baker, and he wasn't much of a businessman, really. He he was just a really passionate baker, and somehow we managed to grow up and survive on on his work and the work we did. You know, I worked for like twenty five cents an hour, and it wasn't um, from what I could tell. It wouldn't have been a huge incentive for you to go into that business because not at all. life wasn't, you know, it's not like you were living high on the high off of his. We're poor. Yeah. We were essentially poor. We were a whole family, though, living off his bakery. My brother was eight years older than me, and, you know, he was the boss anyway. It wasn't when my, my dad started, you know, uh, retreating. My brother was the boss, and there wasn't enough. It was He was a big fish in a small pond, or he was a medium-sized fish in a small pond because... There was nothing. There was nothing there for me, and so here I am, still looking for my identity in life. And the only identity I ever found was uh, criminality and drugs. 
which are one thing. Are you still in touch with some of the people who were part of your criminal life? A few of them, yeah. It's because they've turned their lives around, you know? Only those, well, I guess that would stand to reason. Yeah, the other well, ones, they don't really, I they try to contact me from time to time on Facebook or something. And I, I never immediately respond. I wait and see what they're about. And if they don't impress me as somebody that I want to talk to, um, I can't save anybody. All I can do is be there as support. But I, if you're wrapped up in that lifestyle, um, I'm sorry, you got to figure it out yourself. But you provided a, a template. I did. But your template is a, is not something that's going to work for everybody. As you said, no. you had a little bit of an inf infrastructure when you got thing. out of prison. No. Um, the, so. the, the, the stuff leading up to that is before I got involved in the family business, that's the stuff as a template that I can provide. Find something you can be passionate about, like computer-aided yeah. design. It could have been that. Ask for help. Mm -hmm. Get some drugs that are good for you yeah. instead of not good for you. Yeah. Um, Find what it takes to change your change your thinking. Um, if your life, if you're, you know, after a while you start, if you become, um, start paying attention to your life, you, to what you do and your behavior, which is what I eventually got good at, uh, what are you, are you contributing to a better life, better future? And, you know, are, are you wasting your time with negative thoughts? Like I'm like, I suck or you suck or. Any of that shit. But it's not easy when you're in the throes of depression to to, to say, I don't want to have negative thoughts anymore. It's, you can right. say it, and and you may be successful for five minutes, yeah, an hour. I don't day. have I don't have the instant answer for that because you know when this stuff happened in 2013 with the cops, right for me, and after that I was so depressed. I got so depressed. There was nothing I could do about it. I had a good reason to be depressed. I had let down so many people. Not. You know, it wasn't just me. I'd let down investors, employees, people, like hundreds, thousands, millions of people is what I was thinking. And, um, how am I going to come out of this, you know? So it was weird, though. I, I, had thought, I thought to myself, I've been talking about positivity and, and how I overcame negative thoughts for years, and I, here I am, and I can't get out of this. Because this is too real and it's too it's too painful. And it was big. Yeah. You know, yeah. as much as as much as people want to support you and build you up, you had a great story and and think, look what this guy's done. We also live in a society where they want to pile on and say, ah, he fucked up. He, right. he didn't. You know, that's the real Dave. Yeah. And see, the Willamette Week article came out about me shortly after the incident happened with the cops. Uh, it was the first, and I, I read, you know, the first, when I looked at it, it said Breaking Bread, right? You know, like Breaking Bad. Yeah. And it had that Breaking Bad logo with Breaking Bread. And I thought, hey, that's cute. You know, that's kind of funny. You know, that was before I got depressed. I was still in this manic, hypomanic sort of thing, like really up here, too high. And I saw that, and it was, when I read through it, it just dropped my heart, broke my heart, right? And had they talked to you? Did they tried, but my attorney wouldn't let let me. And it was the first time that I'd ever um, that I wasn't willing to talk to somebody, and I was willing. See, for the thing legal was, reasons, you couldn't. Yeah, I was more than willing to. I thought, well, look, I'm going to explain myself. I'm sorry, I made this, I made this mistake, but I'm still a good guy here, you know, and. 
Um, it wasn't like I returned to criminality or even, you know, methamphetamine. It was, it was drinking leading to eventually mental illness, a mental breakdown. Uh, but I was still having a mental breakdown when they were wanting to talk to me. You know, I wasn't like I was psychotic, but I wasn't right. You know, and so it wouldn't have been. Did you know that at the, t at the no. time? No, I didn't know that. When you when you feel like that, you're just like, everything's cool, and it isn't, you know. You're thinking, oh, yeah, this is great, and you're making jokes about everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I bet you the jokes aren't very funny unless you're in that state. Uh, I went to uh, sort of a treatment thing for two and a half weeks after the incident happened. My attorney said, look, you need to check in to Cedar Hills Hospital. And I'm like, no, I don't. I can bail out and go home, you know. And he's like, come on, please listen to me. You need to do this. Was it, would, do you think that was uh, from the heart for you or because legally you needed to say you went into a treatment program? I think both. Uh, I think the guy, his name's Stephen Howes, and he's, uh, I think he's a, um, a sincere person. And, you know, he protects his clients. You know, sometimes he's got shit bag clients. There's no doubt about it. But I don't think I'm one of those. And, you know, he looked out for, he's always had a holistic approach to it. But yes, I think legally it was obviously important, uh, but it was the right thing to do. So the my defense was legit. <laughs> I had a mental breakdown. Uh, and if they'd have sent different people to to see me when I was in, in that, that state, it wouldn't have happened. So it is what it is. I don't blame people. I don't. It's not my thing. I don't blame people. I don't. It's it's on me. Everything's on me. But um, that was that was a, a tough situation. So I did that, and I remember being that two and a half weeks I was there. I was really high, you know, like high mentally. It's all it's all bullshit. But I was I was feeling this uh, super happy which there was no reason to be happy. Yeah, how, where, where does that come from? <laughs> uh, I was just not facing it, you know, and I am I was able to, your mind just does it, plays tricks on you, you know, uh, when you're going through that bipolar stuff that I only had, you know, it only happened to me once in my life. Hard to, ha hard to diagnose you as bipolar when it only happens when it comes out of left field. Too. Yeah. But but it's a, there's two kinds of bipolar one and two. Um, I don't even know which one I am was, but it's it can happen to anyone really uh, a bipolar episode. Well, if you're not if you're not a high strung person and you're kind of you kind of just go down the road just like I do now, where you're kind of just like this, um, it won't happen. It happens when you deal with a lot of stress, maybe alcohol is involved drugs could be involved but a lot of stress i mean i was dealing with massive issues with the company in my personal life but mostly with the company the company dynamics were changing drastically this this baby of mine was now somebody else's baby and i didn't like it i wasn't feeling you know my losing the control of that but that was due you know i would have not lost that control if I hadn't been drinking, so it's on me, you know. And how did that happen? How did you lose, how did the drinking cause you to lose control? Well, uh, I just, I was having too much fun. I mean, it was it was like I was 
drinking as much as anything else. And I mean, it had gotten to that point where, so incidents started happening. I had a relationship with a girl I shouldn't have had. I had, I was a guy that was my assistant that, um, I gave a little love tap on the, um, on the airplane. You know, I call it a love tap. He called it something else, <laughs> you know? And it was, I was just giving him a hard time because I thought he did a knucklehead thing, but I was just joking around with him. I was drunk. Mm-hmm. And so who knows? Because whatever I did upset him. And that created a whole bunch of problems. I ended up going to treatment before the incident happened. So it's all complicated. It's a long-ass story. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling you might want to tell it. But <laughs> um, So I wanted to ask you, um, you were talking about when you went through the problem with the police in 2013, 13, 13, yeah. um, which just seems, doesn't seem that long. It's ago. a long time ago, uh, six years ago now. Um, it's what I like about it is I've got a lot of distance between me and that. And I have, you know, I'm, I'm a different, I'm not worried about nothing. Right, and you've got cool. and you've got distance between you and Dave's Killer Bread too now. Yeah, and so, uh, that's good and bad. You know, right. mostly good, I guess. You know, there's the emotional side where I, I gave up my baby and I'll never have her back. You know, so there are new babies. You know, <laughs> you can you can find. I do have babies. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but I want you know one of the things um, that I wonder about with depression and going through that and that sort of thing is um do you ever fear that while you think life is good right now and that everything is great that you're not aware that it may not be great like you're in the middle of some shit and you don't know it um do you ever have that fear or that the the, those the symptoms of that depression may come back yeah if you're talking about just my state of mind um there's always, I think you got to have a healthy fear of the monster, if you will. Uh, there's monster takes, takes a place, takes uh, different shapes. And, you know, lots of times it's been in the form of drug addiction in my past, right? Um, and then it was, in a, then alcohol, you know. I didn't realize I could be, that alcohol could fuck up my life, and it did. Did you, was that a new problem? Was that something? Yeah, because, well... Because alcohol never had a chance to be a big deal in my life because I was doing other shit. Yeah, and uh, so here it was, and it, it creeped up on me, stronger and stronger drinks, you know, and and it just, I got, I'm drinking a, a half gallon of tequila a day, or, you know, not every day, but often. Uh, and you see, that's when you're not aware. That's when things... Were you alone? Did you have a girlfriend who could yeah. call to your attention? No, my... Yeah, yeah. Or anybody or friends? I had a girlfriend uh, for 10 years at, during that time. And uh, yes, yeah, she was honestly a very good person. Um, but we, she wasn't able to stop that from happening. And she didn't, she didn't fall into it herself. You know, she drank a little bit. Um, so, you know, I think she would, if she had a chance to do it over again, she could probably do something about it. Uh, so... You know, we talk about the monster returning, and, and if it was going to, there would have to be something to bring it on, I think, you know. But I'm a healthy, my mind is healthy compared to growing up, you know what I mean? I, it's, I'm a different person, so um, something has to trigger that. It's not going to just happen. 
So I'm thinking um, if I avoid alcohol or any other drug that, you know, that's mind-altering, um, then I think I'm okay. I, I, well, also, you got to keep an even keel in life. So, yeah. you know, relationships come and go. You got family relationships. You got romantic things that I know, you know. But women my hate me is, because I don't, I don't give, I don't fall very hard. I just don't. As a defense mechanism. Yeah. Probably. I'm probably. sorry. I don't mean to play oh, I think you're right. psychologist, but I mean, I'm, you know. Yeah, I, but I think you're right about that. And it's a defense mechanism that I learned from 15 years in prison, you know, and not having a lot of people go, hey, you know, sending me letters. I would write letters and never, hardly ever get one back. And that just, at first, would destroy me. And then that, after a while, I, I don't need people. And that was, once I was there, it's hard to return. Mm-hmm. You know. Did, did, have you had your heart broken? Recently? I mean, no, in life. In love, life, love, yes. With love. Yes, because I was, uh, I was needier back then, you know. And I think, uh, I look back and I go, well, it wasn't really even healthy to be, to, for me to fall in love and, and not, I was like a, a puppy or something, you know. The way I look at it now. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I'm always thinking about those things. But yes, if you if it, the less needy you are, it's like anything else. It's like any negotiation in yeah. life. And I'm aware that my girl, a strong I'm position. aware my girlfriend is listening to this. So I, have, <laughs> <laughs> I have to be. He's uh, making sign language to me right now. I'm just no, kidding. <laughs> no, I'm, but I'm speaking in generalities and things. You know, I was single for a long time. Went through depression, so did a lot of thinking about. Mm. You know, I had my heart broken. I don't want my heart broken again, and therefore I was defense mechanism for a long time. So but not anymore. Uh, she's broken through. It's taken That's a while, good. though. But I, I still, I did a year ago. We were talking about this yesterday. Have a pretty strong defense mechanism up, and so it's always. I don't know, but I, I know when I went all in in my life once. It fucked you. And it well. It was it good. Eventually, but then, did it was good, but I mean, years before it fucked me, I had a breakdown because I was so vulnerable, and it turned out that that was true. And that, it got you in the end. Yeah, yeah, it got me in the end. But uh, but on the other hand, I have no real regrets. If if someone said, "Would you do that eighteen year marriage re relationship again?" Knowing, and I've said this before, knowing your heart was going to get stomped uh, at the end. I take that. I take the good with the bad. Don't that, want it to happen, though. I, I now I'll avoid that. It wasn't instant. It wasn't was it an instant ending, or it led you had a <laughs> downhill run in that eighteen years, right? Or was there? You know, it wasn't quite apparent to me, but and then it hit me like a like a train. Yeah. So it was there. When you look back, you could say, "Oh, I could I could have heard the train." So, so what you really would like to redo would be the good years. <laughs> Probably. Oh yeah, I don't yeah. want to redo that. I don't want the pain yeah. again. But um, or the or the uh, inability to see what's going on. That's, right. that sucks to be in that position. Yeah, to but, look back and see that. But I mean, everything you said, as you said, things are different. It would cause certain things to happen. I had little kids. Mm. I had income problems. Uh, you know, lots going on. Yeah, parents. You know, family. The whole thing. So, uh, but this. And you want actually you want to take over and <laughs> talk, talk about my shit because there's a bit there, but there are some similarities. I'd be happy to. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I was uh, someday I'd like to go over that stuff, but yeah. um, at any rate, 
so we were talking about if you fear it's going to come back. So you feel like you're in really. a you feel like you're in a good place. None of my business. But since you said ask me anything, do you talk to a therapist to keep yourself? Well, okay, check this out. Um, I do, and in fact, I'm going to see a guy tomorrow. I don't see him very often anymore because we're yeah, we just go bullshit is what we do now. So mm-hmm. it's not that much. It's like we're talking like this, you know, nowadays, and I'm paying for it. I'm like. Right, <laughs> you know. Well, sometimes I I always view it as the cheapest date I ever have, insofar as I can say what I want to say and not be on the card all the time. Yeah, and I, and the thing is, I I don't I'm so used to talking about myself in public because of of the way that I mean, people know my worst moment. The people are well aware of it. It's very ugly and. So I'm pretty. I'm. I get to talk to you know anybody about anything, you know, because unless it involves somebody else, you know, if it's somebody else's crap, that uh, you know, then it's off limits. I don't talk about other people like that. But so anyway, um, I'm not worried about anything happening because um, I feel healthy. I'm. I'm working out. I. Uh, you know, I have family that I that I try to develop a relationship with. You know, um, but even I think the number one thing that is my insurance policy is I take this drug called Vivitrol. It's a shot in the ass every month um, that keeps me from enjoying getting high or drinking, and uh, I mean it just blocks it. So that's it. Yeah. I didn't, I've never even heard of it. So it's not, it, I don't have a temptation. And I, I, if I have a weak moment, I I, st- I just go, man, that's not worth it, you know. So, um, yeah, Vivitrol, is good. it cost me 800 bucks a month, but it is worth it. With, which a lot of people with those problems can't afford. Yeah, so. I'm hoping that, it, you know, and I, I care about people. I care about society. I care about drug addiction, that whole thing. I'm hoping that someday it's, I know it'll be more available and it'll be cheap at some point and it'll help a lot of people. So there you have it. Part one of our conversation with Dave Dahl here on Right at the Fork. I think that's probably our longest conversation that we've had with anyone, which is why we're giving it to you in two parts. Uh, The easiest thing for you to do is to subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it be through iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify. Uh, We're on the iHeartRadio app. Subscribe to us and then it will automatically show up in your feed and you won't miss it when part two comes out next week. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right